Good morning. This is the Blaine's World Podcast that can be found each week on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. You can also listen in on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. You can get more information and listen to our previous shows at our website, which is behind me, www.blainsworld.net. I'm your host, Blaine Greenfield, and I'm here in my Zoom studio in lovely downtown Fairview, North Carolina. And each week we focus on positive news and information with people and organizations in both Western North Carolina and throughout the country. And to that end, it's my pleasure to introduce Steve Young, a uh, comedy writer, and we'll find out more about him in just a second. But before we do, Steve, you can feel free to wave to all your fans and friends who are watching this. Oh, hi, everybody. Hey, it's me, Steve Young. <laughs> That's Steve Young, all the way from New York. And Steve, uh, we just met a couple minutes ago, so I don't know too much about your background other than you're a comedy writer. And before we talk about that, let me ask you this. As a kid, you grew up where? Pepperell, Massachusetts. Okay. And when you were growing up as a kid in Massachusetts, did you always know you wanted to be a comedy writer? I didn't really understand that that was a thing <laughs> you could do. Uh, it wasn't until I was an adult, pretty much, that I found out that people uh, had jobs writing <laughs> comedy bits for television. So, no, uh, I had early leanings toward being some sort of writer, but I really didn't know what that would what that form would take. So, no, I didn't know about comedy writing until quite a bit later. So, in school, did you study to be a writer, or was that your background? Uh, I was an English major. But uh, if I had to do it over again, I think I might be probably should have been a history major because I ended up being an amateur historian. OK. And so how did you get into then writing comedy? Uh, I was at uh, Harvard and we had a magazine called the Harvard Lampoon, which sure. was the humor magazine. And uh, I was interested in that. I'd always had some uh flair for being funny and i got there and the president of the organization was conan o'brien and i thought wow this guy is very impressive i would like to see if i could uh, uh be the poor man's version of conan o'brien someday and just uh he, he he was very funny and i thought i like that i want to be like that so what was your first gig writing comedy uh out of college it took a while to get my foot in the door but i worked for not necessarily the news okay, which was sure. the EO show and in, in uh, based in los angeles but i didn't really want to move to los angeles luckily i didn't stay there long enough for it to be an issue i spent a while in new york city at the comedy channel before it was comedy central that was uh my first new york gig but it was not too long after that that uh the grapevine in new york for comedy was saying oh there are some openings coming up at the letterman staff so uh, i put in some samples and i was the right person at the right time i guess the head writer thought he saw something he could mold and cultivate how long did you work for letterman 25 years oh wow that's that's quite a a, a, a go at it with one one yeah. not guy. kidding or yeah i was there for a while i was going to say or Letterman missed taking your example with the beard. You know, he saw you yeah. and look good and said, yeah, no, he, he started it, I will say. <laughs> he's way ahead of me. So did you say with then, then until the show went off the air? Yep. Oh, that, exciting, but probably sad too at the time, wasn't it? It felt at the time that it was uh, time to leave all that behind. And it was a great run, but uh, we've all found other things to do. Me, me among them, certainly. Let's talk about the thing you found to do, which the very first time I heard about it, it just kind of blew me blew me away. Because I guess I, I met you or know you through a movie you were involved in. 
and talk a little bit about that movie. Yeah, so uh, movie, it's a documentary called Bathtubs Over Broadway, made by filmmaker Deva Huizanant. And that uh, premiered in 2018, and by 2019, it was appearing on the various streaming services. A lot of people have seen it because of that, and it has introduced America and the world to a form of show business that very few people knew existed. (laughs) And that's been kind of my my hobby uh, slash calling for the last few years is uh, spreading the word about that hidden world. Have they come up with the idea for for this, uh, the documentary? The the backstory, as you may recall from the movie, is when I was working at Letterman, we did a bit called Dave's Record Collection. (laughs) The unintentionally funny real record albums. I had to go out and look for the records. And as I did that, I would occasionally find a souvenir album, a privately pressed LP from a company convention or sales meeting. And it was something like Diesel Dazzle, the Detroit Diesel Engine musical from their 1960s (laughs) convention, or My Insurance Man, the 1968 Continental Insurance sales meeting musical. So I just thought this is crazy that there are musicals at sales, <laughs> um, my collecting became for myself, not for the show anymore. And I was finding more things like the J.C. Penny musical from 1962, <laughs> the Ford Tractor Dealer musical from 1959. Uh, I couldn't <laughs> believe this stuff was real. So that's what the movie is about. Deva saw the book that I co-wrote several years ago. Uh, I knew her from the Letterman show where she'd been an editor and she said she wanted to make a documentary about this because she felt that the move, uh, the, the book, as good as it was, it's called everything's coming up profits only really began the story. She felt there was so much more to say and to find out. And uh, she was right. It was a, an amazing saga that you see unfold, not just me collecting records, but finding the people who wrote these shows. Like it turned out the Ford tractor musical was written by the team that would go on to write Fiddler on the Roof a few years later. Okay. Or the GE Silicones musical from 1973. (laughs) I ended up knowing the gentleman who composed the music for that show and became uh, uh, very close to him. And, And so it's kitsch and weird music, but then there's much more to it as as you see me uh, go deeper in, into meeting people and learning their lessons about how to be a creative person in a world that may not give you any encouragement. Now, this record collection you're showing me, I have to believe you have probably one of the biggest collections of this this stuff anywhere. Out of the six or seven people in the world <laughs> who seriously collect it? Yeah, probably. Uh, I, I've been very lucky. And now that I'm the guy who's in the movie people come to me with things and say uh my late uncle worked on this stuff and i found a a closet full of reel-to-reel tapes or uh, a a box of programs and photos and so it's not just the souvenir records anymore i've accumulated quite an archive of all sorts of memorabilia and ephemera from this secret world that the public was never supposed to know about it was all just behind closed doors for people at these companies yeah we'll talk about seeing some of this when we talk about the upcoming gig you're going to be doing in Asheville. but did you actually get to see some of the full-length movies have you 
So uh, video footage and film footage from this genre is <laughs> rare. But yes, uh, I have a good supply of it. Some things have come to me from original cast members or composers who had films in their basements. Uh, sometimes I find something on eBay and have a lucky score. Sometimes other uh, people I get to know in the film collecting world say, oh, I think I have a few of those in my back room I'm on the dusty high shelf. So things come to me from various directions. But the show in Asheville at the Grail Movie House is me pretty much explaining quickly what this genre is and then showing the ultra rare films that have survived and come my way, such as uh, this is the album, but I have the film <laughs> the American Standard bathroom fixture musical from 1969 the bathrooms are coming which american standard was trying to get plumbing fixture distributors revved up about bathroom modernization so it's a whole insane but beautiful strange musical about bathroom fixtures and i have a, a 20 minute film that i show as part of my show now do they still make these kinds of films rarely uh, the golden age, I consider, went from the mid-50s till around the end of the 80s. But I have occasionally done corporate gigs of my own since the Letterman show ended. And in, in one case this year, I wrote lyrics for a pharmaceutical company event. So once in a while, there's a little bit of it still happening. I don't know if it's something that uh, we'll ever produce video that can be out in the world. I think companies are pretty uh, close to the vest with these things now. Is that the first time you ever did the lyrics? Uh, I'm a songwriter, but that was the first time I ever did lyrics for a corporate project. Yeah. Okay. Very exciting. So since you mentioned it, let's talk a little bit about what's going to happen happening in Asheville. I guess it's this coming Sunday, is it? Yes. Sunday, November 26th. So you've, uh, wound down from thanksgiving you've shipped all your relatives back out of town you've eaten a couple helpings of pie and now you're ready for something to do on sunday evening well the grail movie house is the place to be for a show unlike anything you've ever seen before i come out and explain who i am how i found the secret world of industrial musicals <laughs> and then plunge into the film clips which i've gathered up and over the course of about an hour and 45 minutes i've got mm, i'd say nine 10 11 film clips i do one song live myself that i do with guitar and it is also a corporate show tune so a little mi mixing it up there with some live music but it's mostly the films which i explain how i got to them and what i know about their background and it's very very funny it's just surreal but there's also a lot of heart to it as I talk about the people I ended up meeting and what they came to mean to me. Just listen to this. I'm cracking up. You know, I can't believe that I'm going to go to the Grail on, on Sunday night and see um, not only commercials, but see something right industrial clips. And we're paid to do this, but it, it's a lot of fun though. It will be a hilarious show and very, very <laughs> surprising. Uh, I will say you're right, though. It's not commercials. And people sometimes think, right. oh, it's commercials. Commercials were for the public to see and hear. This stuff by design was secret, kept away <laughs> from the public. It was only to motivate and entertain salesmen, distributors, uh, dealers and executives and managers at these companies. It was explicitly not for the public. 
How was the quality of it? All over the map. <laughs> She's awesome. I mean, some of the music is absolutely stuck in my head for the rest of my life and is hauntingly good. Some of the uh, music, some of the films are, I would say, misbegotten, but in such an interesting, surprising way that it really may rewire your brain permanently about what can be done with music and film and theater. Talk about the reaction, too, of the people you spoke to. So you said you spoke to some of the people who were involved, I guess, in the making of these. Did you speak to any of the actors who were involved in these? Yes. Uh, sometimes I would talk to both writers and performers who were, number one, bewildered that someone had found <laughs> these records or films because they were designed to be kind of ephemeral and forgotten and not for the public. And then confused that I was actually taking a sincere <laughs> interest. I wanted to learn how this world worked, what it meant to them to do this work. Was it fun? Was it dismal? There were lessons there for, for me as a creative person. Like, how do you keep doing good work if you think no one will ever know about it? Or <laughs> it? Is it art if it was commissioned by a toilet company? All these funny yet serious questions. But there was a certain reluctance by some people at first to open up to me. Number one, they heard I was from the Letterman show and then they'd be worried, oh, this guy's out to make fun of me. But there was a stigma to doing corporate gigs. If you were trying to be a serious actor or Broadway performer or musical theater writer, if you were seen as just stuck in the sort of shadow world of these corporate gigs, you might not be taken seriously. And then that was a hard thing to get out of once you were stuck there sometimes. So some people still decades later have a nervousness that they're going to be tarred <laughs> with this brush of, oh, just the industrial people. Oh, that's not serious people. But ever since Bathtubs Over Broadway came out, a new generation of people who've never heard of this stuff are watching and listening to the songs and saying, that is very, very <laughs> strange, but it is good. And I love that, that people are getting past knee-jerk assumptions. I had knee-jerk assumptions when I first found these records. I thought, this has got to be ridiculous. This has got to be <laughs> How can a, a diesel engine musical be good? But it was good. And once I let myself believe that, all the other doors of curiosity started opening. How long did these musicals run? There's, it, it can be hard to tell. I mean, sometimes these conferences and conventions went for several days and musical bits would be interspersed on and off over several days. Sometimes it was really a show and you sit down and you see a show for an hour or an but hour. And that's hour. what I was asking. So some of them were actually an hour or longer? Some of them were full book musicals with a plot and characters <laughs> and uh, a big orchestra. Oh my God, the, the, budgets on these things especially in the golden era of general motors or ge or ford or westinghouse coca-cola spending enormous amounts of money to hire people who were at the top of their game as writers performers choreographers set designers all of it all of it a plus level and just for an audience that may consist of 200 people for one performance one show. you mentioned some of the some of the writers of this were there any, anybody famous ever in any of these that I would know of or you can share? Oh, yes. In the documentary, I interview several people 
who got their start <laughs> doing industrials. Like who? Cheetah, Cheetah Rivera in the 50s, before she hit it big, she was doing Oldsmobile dealer shows. Um, Florence Henderson, years before she was Mrs. Brady on the Brady Bunch. Uh, she had done some Broadway work, but she had a, a young child and didn't want to commit to a Broadway show. So she did some Oldsmobile shows. Martin Short, when he was starting out, did did a bunch of them. Uh, I, I know Hal Linden did some. Uh, for a certain generation of performer, it was a rite of passage for, for many of them. You got excellent pay. You sharpened your craft. You worked with other great people who were also on their way up. You might not be singing the songs you thought you'd be singing <laughs> when you started off into your showbiz career. Suddenly you're singing about transmissions and a tractor or the trials and tribulations of selling BF Goodrich tires. But if you had the talent and could convincingly deliver it like you believed in it, it could be really uh, at least financially rewarding and sometimes creatively rewarding. I could just see you said Martin Short. I could just see him doing this. It'd be hysterical. But was that? Let me ask you too. In terms of the very first time you saw them, were you laughing or cringing or or combination of both at times? Early on, when I was first finding the record albums, I was having trouble conceptually <laughs> the reality of entire musicals written for an insurance company or for uh, the Westinghouse power systems or whatever. And I, I was just confused. Like, this has got to be terrible, right? Then why is it not terrible? It's good. But uh, I just didn't know, number one, how the shadow world worked and why so many talented people were evidently doing this. Also, how many of them are there? Like, by the time I had eight records, I thought, are there 12? Money <laughs> now I've got like 200 records, and some of them are the only known copy in the world of a show. So it was very mysterious to me at first. It felt like something comedy writers must have made up. But well, then it turned out it was real and sincere and sometimes shockingly good. But even as you're describing it, I'm cracking up. You know, it's sort of funny stuff when you think about yeah. it. But I'll have to see the show. So let's recap a couple of things you said. So the show is going to be, um, I guess, a week. To, it's, we're taping this on a Sunday. So it's a week from tonight, right? That's right. Sunday evening, uh, November 26th. At the Real Movie House. which That's is in right. River Arts District and plenty of parking. Um, and the uh, time is 7 to whenever it's over. Seven to about nine, uh, 8.45, and then I do hang out afterwards. People invariably have a lot of questions or want to tell me about, hey, my uncle worked for John Deere. I bet he went to, and I will have a merch table. I'll have some things to sell, but it's uh, uh, not a huge theater, so I would recommend right. if you're interested, go to grailmoviehouse.com and grab your tickets while you can. And by the way, does that ever happen that you're doing a show or a gig and somebody comes up with a new album or something that you hadn't seen before? Does that ever happen? Absolutely. I was in Cleveland and I met somebody <laughs> who uh, pointed me towards an RCA uh, film from the early 80s that I'd never heard of. Once in a while, somebody just drops a line out of the blue. I saw the movie and I bet you'd love this. And sometimes I've gotten some amazing records I've never heard of before or uh, a trunk full of scripts or VHS tapes or something. So, yeah, I love being the guy that that uh, stuff flows to now. And so um, this show, so you're taking, I guess you've done this other parts of the country. 
Yeah, I've just uh, uh, been doing uh, on and off for the past couple months. Uh, since the end of the summer, I did Milwaukee, Chicago, New York, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Houston, Philadelphia, and Asheville is the next one. And then I'm on to a few more cities. Very exciting. And then first time you've been on the Blaine's World show, so you've really hit it big. You know, uh, that's yes. So let me uh, ask you this. Always send it. If you if you can make it on Blaine Greenfield's show, you can <laughs> anywhere. Um, let me ask you down the road. So we're doing this currently. And by the way, you should mention one more time so they can get the book. The name of the book is what? The name of the book is Everything's Coming Up Profits. And sadly, it is out of print. The popularity of the documentary, we burned through two printings. And now uh, the publisher says we would love to print another one if and when it makes economic sense to do another printing. So right now, I don't have any books to offer your viewers. But uh, hopefully someday we'll have a third printing. So the good news is, though, they can see Talk about where they can see the documentary. The documentary, Bathtubs Over Broadway, is on Amazon. It's on Apple or iTunes or whatever the Apple platform is called this month. It's, uh, I think, on a few other things like uh, might be Google Plus or you could rent it on YouTube, I think. So uh, it's always a little unclear which uh, which platform has it at which time. But it's definitely out there. Bathtubs Over Broadway. And I'll... Uh, tell people if you want to see something really cool, catch this documentary. It's 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 really fun to watch. And last question, Steve. Moving ahead, do you have any plans in the future to do anything other than promoting industrial films? Why would I ever want to do anything? <laughs> no, I have uh, I have a lot of different projects, uh, writing projects, music projects. As I mentioned in passing, I have uh, uh, developed quite an interest in songwriting. I'm going to be putting out some. Uh, some of my own music soon and uh, just putting the finishing touches on a couple music videos uh, always available for corporate gigs and corporate comedy writing. If any of your viewers uh, need something like that, I'm all ears, but uh, I like having a varied portfolio these days. And you'll send to me, I'll put some of this in the notes, especially your contact information for folks also do want to get in touch with you. What's the best bet? Oh, uh, well, there's my website, steveyoungworld.com, and you can certainly email me through there. Also see some of uh, the things I've been working on in recent years, as well as all the way back to writing for The Simpsons or Letterman or uh, different fun creative projects. I am on Instagram at pantssteve, P-A-N-T-S-S-T-E-V-E. That goes back to my Letterman days when my first email address, everybody at the show got a <laughs> pants email address because of Dave Letterman's company was Worldwide Pants. So that's why that uh, that artifact still is there, Pants Steve on uh, Instagram. Okay, but if you want to find you, you can find you. And uh, Steve, I'm looking forward to meeting you in person then next uh, Sunday night. And uh, thanks for being my guest on this edition of the Blaine's World Podcast. All right. And I'd also like to thank my producer, Cappy Tassetti. And we'll see you all sometime in the near future. Thanks, man. All right. You need this in your life, Kara.